of Dr. Mary Jean Gallagher. Now, Dr. Gallagher has been an associate of Michael Fullins for many years. She's worked at the most senior levels of education in Ontario, at one point leading that state's 5,000 schools uh, in raising literacy and numeracy results considerably. So, Dr. Gallagher, your final reflection, if you would. All right, great. Thank you very much. And it's a great pleasure for me to have an opportunity, first of all, to uh, reflect a bit on Michael's comments and also to, to uh, recognize the kinds of remarks that the panel has brought forward. It was interesting to me that Michael started out from a point of view of suggesting that there's this great risk, actually recognizing there's a great risk that our education system <clears throat> may or may not be able to make the change. And that where we ended up in a way was with a uh, pretty strong defense by the panel members that in fact, uh, the pandemic may have taught us how to change in education more rapidly than any of us would have thought we were capable of. I think what's happened here is that Michael has, what Michael's, and I'm sorry about the technical problems here, but anyway, um, what Michael has, has posed for us is in fact uh, a considerable challenge. And I take the position that most challenges are in fact uh, both a blessing and a curse. Um, the, the, the blessing, of course, is that we learn things in very challenging times and we can have an opportunity to work together differently and with much more flexibility. The curse, of course, is that we need to accelerate what we're doing along that way. We have to be ready to engage in at every level of our system and every participant in our system to work in different ways to rise up and meet our students' need for a more equitable, relevant, and engaging learning experience, one that is, in fact, fit to the future. And that, in fact, is exactly what uh, PASI and um, PACT set for us as well. And I agree with what David said in the panel, that in many ways our schools have been changing. I see it in the schools and the connections I've maintained with a number of schools in Victoria and the Australian Capital Territory. In fact, um, there's lots of really good work been taking place throughout um, the, the decade of 2010 to 2020. Because when you walk into those schools that I've seen in Australia, Staff are working together in many, many of them in very different ways than they ever did. And I think that's really um, an important piece. The pace and spread of the change through that decade of 2010 to 2020 is in fact uneven. And that's always true in educational change because we do acknowledge that being an educational change leader can in fact be a lonely and risky occupation and the pace of change in our society always outstrips what we manage to do, or at least seems to. My perspective is actually based on my time in school. And it also is recognizing that for some of the people watching this program today, it's got to be really frustrating because they're exhausted. Many of them feel a bit overwhelmed. They're still putting out great work for students but they're less confident in some ways of their ability to respond to this plethora of new needs for change. Um, and, and the pandemic has exacerbated that and created that problem. So the question I'd like to pose is how do we move forward? How do we, for the sake of our students, achieving their best possible, most richly imagined future? My answer to that is we take stock of where we are, 
we own what we've learned in all of our work over the last decade to try to make change in our schools. Um, and like our students, we learn our way forward. As I say, I don't believe that um, in fact, it's a lost decade. Um, I like Michael learn continuously from a number of the schools and systems we work with. And we learned in the 2010 to 2020, many schools have learned that they can actually set a goal for change and they can get people to be all in and trying to make that change happen. And I think that's important. We also learned that the goals we set in 2010 to 2020 were too narrow and in many ways too timid. And we certainly learned that we have to, as part of improving a school system, that we have to keep working on it as a continuous need. That once we see over one horizon, we will end up then having to look at um, what the next horizon is for us as we work forward. And we've certainly learned that improving our school system in, in fact requires the whole village to be part of that change. The schools I know who are making progress are increasingly strategic about communications with and the engagement of people in the community, in the school and around the school. And we also know that sustainable change is going to require that governments, departments of education, district regional offices and schools become more committed and smarter about leading the right kinds of improvement and respecting who should be taking the lead in what kinds of change that you want to achieve. We are very clear now, and no one has made any argument to the contrary, that um, the suggestions um, PASI and PACT made to suggest that we need to create school systems of excellence. And in Australia, they pushed the notion that that success must be much more broadly defined than in the past in terms of what we want our students to learn. But that we also have to pay attention to student and staff well-being in much more intense and successful ways than we have in the past, even before the pandemic and especially since. It's also increasingly clear that a school which pursues excellence and even well-being <clears throat> without an accompanying focus on equity, can't achieve excellence. I would say a, such a school, if they're not also focusing on success for all students <clears throat> and doing whatever it takes, excuse me, um, ends up being a school that sorts students instead of educating them. And surely that cannot be either our goal or an acceptable outcome. In fact, our goal has to be that we get better at achieving all three of those. Now, for those who are feeling overwhelmed and are wondering how they can take on this extra work, please understand two things. You don't have to do it all at once. As Michael said, the flight to the moon took 60 years or so, 66 years to bring about. So pick Whatever level of the system you're in, whatever part you're in, classroom, leader, regional office, uh, department, you don't have to do it all at once. Pick some specific goals in each of the three areas and do something that evidence and research tells you is likely to result in an improvement for students. And once you get together and work on that, 
and learn to work together around that and hone those processes, you in fact will see some successful improvement happening and you will be able to accelerate those results. I really am optimistic about where we can go with what we've learned. Also, the second point, use the processes that you have already in place, those school improvement plans and professional learning targeted to the areas of student need, collaboration and growing coherence in the culture of the system. Use those things to create steady gains, even if small, you'll learn your way forward faster that way. And um, like, I, I really see that happening. You go into some schools now and staff, when they bump into each other in the hallway are talking about what they've been teaching and, and the aha moments that students have had. They're talking about ways in which they did something really unusual to connect with a student and try to keep them connected to the group, even if it was during online. It's not all brand new work. It is the work that many schools are already doing. It needs to be accelerated and broadened and become increasingly precise. Um, but it's happening out there in terms of increasingly effective pedagogy and strategy. We need to accelerate that. The other thing I would suggest is that, in fact, schools can continuously improve and can achieve the goals they set. But we have to acknowledge that any change journey is less about task and all about culture. In fact, I worry in many instances that school or system leaders get caught up identifying all the tasks that you have to do. And they forget that in fact, real change happens when people come together and work together and learn together as they try to act differently. And it isn't just leaders that have to be able to be vulnerable and express what they don't know and what they're trying to learn. Teachers need the space to be able to do that as well. There are important components and tasks that have to be in place to support that process happening. But it is, in fact, cultural. And school culture can either enable and accelerate change, or it can disable the progress that's there. So you really do have to pay attention to what the conversations are in their school. Way back about 20, 25 years ago, William Perky in the US said essentially you could tell a lot about a school by the nature and quality of the adult conversations in it and that relationship and engagement of students. Um, so a school improvement plan, even a moonshot combination of excellence, well-being, and equity won't be realized if it's a document that's created to support, to, to, to fulfill the department. Those processes are golden opportunities to engage your school's village, teachers, staff, students, inside and outside the school, parents, guardians, community members, in talking about and coming to a conclusion about what it is that they want the school and the community to come together and do for and with the students in the school. Bringing those people together is an important task. All of these end up supporting each other in lifting each student and then finding whatever it takes to make it happen. In the end, your school's culture can in fact enable that. Michael and I have talked in, in, in the Devil in the Details book about connected autonomy. The process of change is not a top-down process. The department can't do it. But nor is sustainable change something that can happen from the bottom up alone, right? We've described it as connected autonomy. 
Every involved group has some independence in terms of how they're going to engage and what they're going to contribute. But in fact, it's not isolation. It is stepping into a way that integrates with your colleagues horizontally and vertically with people inside the school and outside the school in a way to come to common understandings and common work that is in fact interdependent. Now, when we come up with that and you look at schools that are in fact successful in doing that, because I'm trying to take all these high-end things that we've been talking about and land them in a school. What does it mean for a principal, for teachers? What is it that we have to be trying to work towards in order to see success? And the first thing that we need to see is what is it that we do see in these schools that in fact have success in making some substantive changes? The first thing we see is strong strong collaborative teams um, and, and, and the ability of the school to work together differently. Next comes that clear focus on effective pedagogies, continuous improvement and evidence that it's working as we go along. High expectations by all and for all. And that's where the equity piece comes in. A building of trust, and that needs to be a conscious issue through communication, engagement, and ownership inside and outside the school along the way. So if we look at all of that and we try to put it all together, what we're really trying to do is build a learning and caring organization. Some, in fact, delivers on that focus on learning and well-being. It's a place where people are able to be curious together about evidence and impact of their teaching and where risks can be taken, where diverse and effective pedagogy is a reality as we go forward. And, and that the school consciously builds things in to the structures that makes it normal. You build in time for teachers to meet so it's not always after school. You build in opportunities for people to learn from each other. So here's my question that I get from one of our colleagues and that is the following. Are we as schools producing students who are good at learning to be taught or students who are good at learning to learn? Because our students need to be ready to learn for a lifetime and we need to engage them in activities that allow them to do that. The good news is, as you look at it, um, and people who know my passion for literacy and numeracy will uh, perhaps be a little bit worried here, um, but the good news is, in fact, you can do the foundational skills. You can do what people refer to as catch up from some people who are missing some of the skills because of the pandemic gaps and other challenges. But you can do that while you engage in the broader curriculum, where you get into collaborative inquiry and knowledge building that students can use as stepping stones to metacognition. It's about how you can put together some really good examples. And I won't have time to share both of my examples with you, but I'm going to give you one. I want to tell you about a program that I saw that we created in Ontario schools called Students as Researchers. We um, actually staff brought in people from the university to teach high school kids and senior elementary kids how to do research, how to do surveys, what good research and good surveys look like. Groups of kids would go, take an issue together and they would go out and design a research project and over the year do some research on a topic of their choice group of in Indigenous students who came from a remote village and were living far away from home in a, a city took that on. And the, the practice this young lad in grade 10 and his colleagues, in year 10 and his colleagues, wanted to take on was, why do Indigenous kids fail in our schools? 
they spent a year surveying elders, surveying school people, surveying students, surveying everybody in the world and putting together a report that essentially was a, a pretty clear statement about the degree to which these kids felt they were trying to be educated in a racist and isolating environment, that they did not feel they were valued in the school, etc. The magic in this was in the reaction of the school. Rather than becoming defensive, this school sat down and said, we don't think we're racist, but if these students believe we are, if that's what they feel, we have a responsibility to change. In the following year, that group of students who did that research and produced that report worked with the principal and the leadership of the school and the staff and the student leaders in the school to change the culture and attitudes and integration of the school around the involvement of Indigenous students. Three years later, three years later, the young man and other students leading that actually graduated. And the graduation rate of Indigenous students in that school now has gone from about 28% to about 65% over a period of four or five years. That's magical. And it's caused by the fact that you give students a real voice and let them lead forward. So in that, I think Michael is quite right. Anyway, thank you very much. It's been my great pleasure to be part of this. Mary Jean, thank you uh, so much for that uh, uh, that uh, wrap, if you like, of both Michael's presentation and the uh, the thoughts of our panellists this morning. I, I loved that uh, final example you gave of a stunning culture change, of course, led by students, and of course, it means putting your faith in those people.